Uh, coming up next, the Buckening has to read the Dubliners. Yay! And here we go. <laughs> <laughs> What's that from? That's the Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> December, everybody. Welcome to the Booketing. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host, welcoming you to the Booketing. Uh, <laughs> hey, we're reading the Dubliners today. Yay. Yay, we already read the Dubliners. We're talking about the Dubliners today. I think we have listeners in Ireland. Do we have listeners in Ireland? In Ireland. <laughs> in Ireland. Well, they must be excited by my, my entirely authentic Irish brogue. Yeah. Folks, I'm a master of accents. If there's one thing that we've determined, I'm a master of voices and accents, always on the booking, doing the voices and accents. That's what the principal thing that you listen to the booking is to hear me do. Do my accents? They're always after me, lucky charms. Yeah. Fun yes. fact, the booking has many readers in England and readers. Many listeners. readers? <laughs> many listeners in England and Scotland. The booking has no listeners in the last three weeks in Ireland or Wales. Oh, well, come oh, on, Ireland. Come on, Ireland. They'll, they'll join us now right. to hear us tear apart their <laughs> national hero. <laughs> I mean, we got a lot of listeners in, like, Metro London, it looks like. But Weird. Well, hello, London. Mm, top, hello, London. Top, hello, London. <laughs> top of the morning to you, governor. Uh, uh, I was thinking somebody not should... A, not, a, not a thing from Ireland. Not a thing from Ireland. Well, that's about to change as we discuss their national heroes, Brandon said. Actually... Fun fact, our uh, biggest city apparently is Tokyo. Oh, we got Mickey Rooney from Breakfast at <laughs> Tiffany's over here. Uh, we got Mickey Rooney from, I feel like Dennis Miller or something like that. Only the finest inspirations for the booking. I'm basically just doing Dennis Miller. You should know that about me. I'm trying to establish, uh, capture the, uh, nobody cares about Dennis Miller. Nobody's even going to get the irony there. That was the most Dennis Miller thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to get the irony there. <laughs> nobody understands me <laughs> shots fired against the great dennis miller is he a conservative is he a liberal no one really knows he's hated by both sides and rightly so <laughs> no i think i maybe i don't know dennis miller do we like him do we hate him i don't know i don't even know if he's a thing i don't even know if he has a program i don't know it's his twitter went dead i looked up his twitter one day for some reason um he's doing monday night football for a while he's doing monday night football that sounds like the kind of place that old uh, dm belongs no, nah, he was terrible at it. Was he terrible at Most it? Most people, he, he was just too Dennis Miller for primetime Monday Night America. He wasn't, was, hey, fans, it's Dennis Miller. He couldn't. Hey, let me be ironic and throw in references that will make you feel stupid. <laughs> All of you millions of American football fans that represent the entire population of the country. <laughs> yeah, <you> probably. <laughs> well, folks, we're not doing a podcast about Dennis Miller. Maybe one day, if we get enough money on our Patreon, we'll do a podcast. I'm sure Dennis Miller's probably written a book. Yeah. And we'd be happy to review it. 
In any case, welcome to The Booketing, everybody. I'm Nathan Oberson, your humble and obedient host, joining you for yet another episode of The Booketing. We're happy that you could be here, wishing a top of, top of the morning to all our Irish listeners that we don't have, that we will. Joyce never went back to Dublin after he wrote after The Dubliners was published, I think, because he'd thrown so many people under the bus. So maybe they're happy. Maybe Maybe they hate Joyce in Ireland. Maybe they'll be happy to hear our thoughts on Joyce. Or maybe we love Joyce and all our thoughts will be positive. I don't know. We'll find out, folks. We'll find out. But before we do that, I think you probably want to hear me introduce our delightful cast of characters. Join me, why don't you, as I do that. The first person here. I just thought of a Irish movie that I like. Or a movie about Ireland. The Quiet Man, starring John Wayne. Yeah. Probably John Wayne's best movie. I would yeah, say. I think so. Sort of manly enough that your dad could still watch it on a Saturday morning and enjoy it on the John Wayne punching people across Ireland level. But actually, really fun, good, interesting story. Got the beautiful Maureen O'Hara with her red hair, and uh, that's all I really remember. It's been a long time since I've seen The Quiet Man. That's a good movie, though. Yeah. You should watch The Quiet Man. If you haven't watched The Quiet Man, it's it's worth filling that particular hole in your filmography and your watching. Yeah, if you've never watched another, if you never watched another John Wayne movie. If you ever watched another John Wayne movie, you got to watch The Searchers. You got to watch The Quiet Man. I think that's probably about it. And if you like John Wayne, you can watch everything. True Grit. True Grit. True Grit, yeah. True Grit is good. But you can watch the Coen Brothers version instead. Which I would say is better. Yeah. I know there's purists and people that like the John Wayne version. But the John Wayne version really is just, hey, it's John Wayne being John Wayne. And it's kind of cute and everything. And it's fun. But I don't know. It's a little cheesy. Sorry. Sorry. True, True Grit fans. Anyway. He's over there. He's wearing a black pullover. He's wearing jeans. He's wearing brown shoes. I'd say it's pretty much the typical winter outfit for him. It's in character for him. Can you guess who that is? Can you guess, Brandon, who I'm talking about? No. I hope it's not the mysterious phantom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. This would have been a good episode for the mysterious phantom to show up on. Maybe he still will. You never know what's going to happen. Pretend I never said that. (laughs) (laughs) I've never gotten to be on an episode with the mysterious phantom. I mean, I always wondered what it would be like. It's Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. How you doing today, Jake? I'm doing fine. Just I'm fine. Glad to hear it. You excited to talk about the Dubliners? Your favorite book that we've ever read? You were telling us just before we hit record. Uh, You're like, oh, fellas, I read a balmy book and a it, balmy book. <laughs> <laughs> it brought the green queen's knickers under my. I don't know. I don't know any <laughs> Irish lingo. There may be a reason why we don't have any fans in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> And by all our friends are uh, in England and Scotland. Yeah, yeah. I'm just playing to our British. Uh, they're like, yeah, <laughs> you show those Irish. <laughs> uh, well, over there, we have, you, you have any Irish blood, Jake? You I have do. Any Irish blood? I am a quarter Irish by way of eights. <laughs> 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 I think you can do that, right? Like if you have two mutts that come together as eights, then you're a quarter. Two mutts that come together as eights, then you're a quarter. I would assume so. I mean, why not? I mean, that's, I don't know. I think that's right. If you have two full-blooded Irish people that come together, you get 100% Irish with each of them contributing 50 of that percent. So the math works that way. Why wouldn't it work with mutts? Oh, no. Oh, no. I think I have two quarters that would stay a quarter for me, right? Isn't that right? Oh, the way it actually works. Well, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it would stay a quarter. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think both my dad and my mom are each quarter Irish. Yeah, so you're a quarter Irish. That makes you a quarter. That makes Irish. me a quarter Irish. Yeah. That doesn't make you half Irish. No, you oh, can't. That man. doesn't work. So my dad's a quarter Irish, a quarter Scottish, and 
I think, half German. And my mom is a quarter Irish, quarter Scottish, and half English. And that makes me a quarter all the way around. Yeah. So you're not half Irish. I'm a quarter Irish, a quarter Scottish, a quarter English, and a quarter German. Oh, it's hurting my brain. Okay. I'm just a mongrel mutt, man. You're a mongrel mutt? Mostly British Isles with some Germanic stuff going on there. With some Germanic stuff going on there. You're right, nation of Germany. They make cars. They're efficient. And then I introduced the French to my kids. How'd you introduce the French to your kids? I married... Oh! Yeah. You introduced your kids to existence. Yes. A partially French existence. We, we. Well, that's Jake Benzel. He's a pastor who's a master of reading. One quarter Irish. A lot of other things mixed in there. So we know he loved this... A quarter of him loved this book. We'll see how the other parts of him felt about it. Now... (laughs) In addition to Jake Menzel, we've also got right over there. He's wearing black, sort of dark blue. Dark blue. Would you have called that as dark blue, Jake? From here, it looks sort of charcoal to me. I would have said charcoal. I wouldn't have said charcoal. I don't think I've ever said the word charcoal in my life unless I'm talking about the things that you set on fire. But I would have said like a gray, a dark gray. Well, folks, you're probably wondering who that is. Probably sitting on the edge of your seat. Curious. And I'm going to tell you who it is. And I'm going to tell you every single name that I've given him. Because it's always fun to go through those for the 40,000th time. He's the, I can't remember a single one of them. PhD ABD? He's the PhD ABD. He's the scholar who's a baller of reading. He's an old son of a sea biscuit. He is, I don't know, I know there's other things. <laughs> Booking true fans, tweet me, tell you me. Gotta, you gotta remember him. I forgot him already. Yeah, well, he's, had, he's a man of many titles. Yeah. And he works in the title business. Hey. Hey. <laughs> and his initials, BSC. Yeah. His name. Brandon Scott Chastain. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Brandon, how are you, my friend? Doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> not going to come at, at you with any Irish accent. I'm not part or Irish, Cockney I don't think. Or Cockney. Cockney. Aye. Aye, there. What's in your lineage wallet? Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Governor. <laughs> I think we have some British Isles. Some British good, Isles. Good portion of British Isles. Mm. Some French. Mm. And some Cherokee. And some Cherokee. Yeah. I took the whole Cherokee nation, yeah. put you on a reservation. That's right. I live on a reservation. Even. Right, would you consider yourself to be an Indian outlaw? Yes. <laughs> Cherokee and Choctaw. Yep. <laughs> Is your baby a Chippewa? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of a kind. One of a kind. <laughs> ah, ah, only the finest, freshest references. <laughs> <laughs> 90s Tim McGraw right there, buddy. <laughs> From the beginning. Hey, welcome to the beginning today, folks. We're going to talk about the Dubliners. And uh, we're going to get right to it. We, we're not going to deny you another second, except for donor shoutouts. Let me pull up my list of donor shoutouts. Now, Brandon, what special surprise do you have in store for our donors today how are you are you gonna do it with an irish accent what are you gonna uh i wasn't planning on a surprise <laughs> <laughs> i in fact was <laughs> oh boy um jake how you you can call it what uh, how do you think brandon should do this as the lucky charms guy oh <laughs> hello i can't do it i can't do it. i'm not the guy of accents you got to do it today nathan <laughs> i gotta tell you i gotta be the guy that says what they are I'll say what they are as the Lucky Charms guy. Lucky Charms. Oh, me Lucky Charms. (laughs) I know. Uh, (laughs) Which, by the way, folks, the Warhorn Media now has more than one Patreon page. And I am ashamed to say 
that Pastor Tim Bailey's Patreon page, Out of Our Minds, that supports his work, is making more money. Can you believe that? Than the bookings is. That's ridiculous. Now, how many people, how many pledges would it take us to beat Out of Our Minds, Jake? Out of Our Minds has seven more patrons. Seven more patrons? Let's just go for 10 people. 10 people getting a donor shout well, out? Look, look, no, 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 no. I don't care if we bring in more money than Out of Our Minds. I mean, it's not about the money. But I think there are more than 24 people out there that love our work enough and would love to help make sure we can keep doing the bookening and are willing to give at least a dollar a month or $4 a month. I bet you're right, Jake. And if they're willing to give 10, then they can be part of this amazing segment. That's right. Where we shout them out. That's right. You do as you will, listener, but just know history is being made <clears throat> and you don't want to be left behind. I, I think we should have a goal for the month of December. It's a good year-end thing to do. Mm-hmm. I would love to see us... Man, 30 supporters is like too low a goal in my mind. But like to hit 2018 fresh with at least $250, $300 a month coming in, 30 to 40 supporters on Patreon, that would be huge for us. That yeah. would be amazing. And we do really appreciate everyone that's supporting us right now. Yeah, Have, thank you guys so much. Yeah, we really, we really, really love it. Love having you guys be a part of this, part of the dis- part of the discussion, part of our little book club. And I say that with irony, but also without it, because it's hard for me to ask for money without saying it like this so that you don't feel too much pressure because I don't like to put pressure on people. But on the other hand, I really do appreciate everyone who's giving, and we really would love to see that number uh, go up. True story, Warhorn Media is really close to being able to hire Nathan Alberson to uh, to work work for us for full time. Full time. Wow. And all of you guys who are giving right now are a part of that. Those of you who aren't, man, just a little bit more would be really helpful to give us breathing space to be able to pay him. Point is, thank you very much for supporting us. And let's shout out these donors we've got. We're going to go in reverse order today. <coughs> Irish, Irish broke. Irish broke. Ireland. Hey, be on a Before fair. we do that, I just want to, I'm going to go ahead and tell people that Warhorn Media is a nonprofit. If you want to make a, a nice end of the year donation to us, you don't want to maybe go through the rigmarole of signing up for Patreon, but you'd like to support the work with an end of year donation that's tax deductible, you can go to warhornmedia.com and forward slash give and, uh, and help us out that way. Yep. Or if you don't like forward slashes, just go to warhornmedia.com. There's a big old give button near the top of the page on the right hand side, I think. And uh, yep. it's not hard to find. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to everybody that supports us. We really do appreciate it. Or and they could just bring a suitcase of cash. Yeah, we'll take a suitcase of cash. Directly to. Yeah, totally. Or even better, if you could bring, bring two sacks with dollar signs on them and money pouring out of them, mm-hmm. and you could just leave them on our door and then go zip away like a cartoon character, or stick around and shake our hand and, you know. Go out to coffee or beer. Or... Go out to coffee or beer. We'll go out to coffee and or beer with you. So anyway, thank you very much. And let's shout out our donors, guys, with a nice Irish brogue, Brandon. I'll let you shout out the... The very ones that brought you into the world. Oh, okay. Rhonda and Robert, the lovebirds. Oh, Rhonda and Robert, the lovebirds. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, would, you, would you close to my heart? <laughs> Just turning into this. Oh. <laughs> and one who I hold close to my own, de- my own dear heart. Oh, who? <laughs> uh, John, John and Jill, the lovebirds, and their little baby Max. Oh, John and Jill, the lovebirds, and your wee little one, Max. <laughs> 
Uh, then we've got. Uh, let me see here. <laughs> then we've got uh, <laughs> who we off there? Yeah, who's next? <laughs> well, then we've got Beth. So let's just just shout it out to Beth. <laughs> I can't do my cockney. Oh, hello, <laughs> hello, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the morning to you. <laughs> Oh, this is awful. <laughs> uh, see, we have uh, mm, Benjamin Tiberius. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Oh. Hi, Benjamin Tiberius. <laughs> Benjamin Tiberius. <laughs> oh, what a name. You must be a clever chap. <laughs> oh, and then we have Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. <laughs> And uh, uh got Jay and Katie. Um, what did they say? What did they say? What did they say? They wanted to be Jay and Katie from uh, Madison. Jay and Katie from Madison. Or no, we should do uh, like for sure. them. They deserve kind of a uh, got Jay. Or uh, how does how do they talk in Fargo? You know, they sort of hey there. Hey, hey yeah. Hey. So hey Jay. Jay, hey. Jay and Katie from uh, Jay, uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, eh? okay there. Hey, yeah. <laughs> oh, hey Jay. Hey Katie. <laughs> how you doing? Hey. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out for them weird chippers there. <laughs> Not gonna lose their support. <laughs> Last time we did this, we said that they were cold and they liked cheese. <laughs> now we assume they. <laughs> oh no, we don't assume they talk like this at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, Oh, they have a little bit of the Norwegian sort of, uh, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit of the upper northern Americana sort of a thing. So we got them. Which is apparently Scottish. Which is <laughs> <just> apparently Scottish. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then we have Dr. X. We've got Dr. X. We need to shout out Dr. X. Is it Dr. X? He professor. is Dr. X, yes. He used to be Mr. X. Th- professor. Yeah. Prof- professor. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Oh, hey, Professor X. <laughs> professor X. How you doing there, chap? <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got uh, Maya. What? Huh? <laughs> Maya. Maya Antonia? Maya? Oh, hey, Maya. Maya, we got Maya. Maya. Uh, and oh, and we've got Nathan. Not me, Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Not Nathan, Nathan, but Nathan. Yeah, the other Nathan. <laughs> the other more, Nathan. More than one Nathan in this big thinning globe. Uh, and I think that's everyone. Let me double check. That concludes our donor shout outs. Say thank you to the d- donors, Brandon. Oh, thank you, donors. Thank you kindly. <laughs> It's an airplane. It's the airplane flying over. In real life, there's an airplane IRL outside our window flying over. Maybe you can hear it. Maybe I can't. We find sounds pick up quite well in these microphones, so you might hear it. IRL. IRL in real life, yeah. I like to use that internet abbreviation. It makes me LOL when I say IRL. But but that's not the sound that you hear. You hear the sound of the, the pistols being fired into the air by the contextual. He's the contextual Texan. <coughs> They're going off. <laughs> Provide- oh, yeehaw. <laughs> Ye- yeehaw. <laughs> I'll just do it all in an Irish brogue today. Yeah, he's providing, uh, he provides some context about the work, and that's what he does. He's Brandon Chastain. He's a PhD, ABD. He's got lots of knowledge about literature. <laughs> I'm sort of going into Scottish now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brandon, he's, he's, Brandon, he's a, he's a contextual Texan. He's, he's got uh, knowledge about le- uh, uh, literature. He's from Texas, and he's going to share some of that knowledge. Talk about the book we're talking about today, The Dubliners by Mr. James Joyce. That's right. Take it away, Brandon. Let's take this away. So it's come to my attention that I need to add a caveat to the beginning of this contextual Texan thing, right? A caveat. A caveat. A caveat. Mm. Um. So I have said in the past <laughs> that this is what, the greatest book of short stories ever written. Something along those lines. Something along those lines. Well, um, the Beatles and all that stuff. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> <laughs> Look, folks, 
The Beatles are the most influential rock and roll band ever to have lived. And if you don't like them, then you're wrong. Yeah. But. So James Joyce is the most influential short story writer who has ever lived. So therefore, if you don't like him, you're wrong. No, that's not (laughs) what I'm trying to say. There's actually two separate ways of being, of talking about greatness. And when Brandon said that The Dubliners was the greatest short story, he didn't necessarily mean it was his favorite. He didn't necessarily mean it was an edifying, wonderful work. What he meant was that it was a very influential one that changed the nature of the writing game, which is what he's about to tell you about. But we will come back and discuss over the course of these two episodes that we're doing on The Dubliners, whether it is in fact a wonderful, edifying, enjoyable thing for you to read. That is an entirely another question, one that Brandon has not yet answered for you. But I haven't will. answered that. We're all going to answer that for them, right? Well, yes, we're all going to. We're going to answer that from them. And um, I, I, just to give Brandon's caveat for him, he was not necessarily saying that The Dubliners was his favorite work of literature. Thanks for giving my caveat for me. You're welcome. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so then to dive right into this, so and to build off of that, James Joyce is probably the most important writer of the 20th century who a lot of people have never either read, and some people haven't either ever heard of him, I would say. He's read a lot in the Academy. He's admired a lot in the Academy, but his output is pretty small. You have Ulysses, you have Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, you have Finnegan's Wake, and you have Dubliners. And he wrote a, a book of poems called Chamber Music, but most people agree that it's not worth your time. And so most people don't read his poetry. So when we say he's the most influential, one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, it's because he fathered kind of the modernist avant-garde movement. He, along with T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and Virginia Woolf, this group of writers would go on to be the figureheads of what would be the difficult, obtuse, obscure, obtuse. Did I say obtuse? <laughs> it kind of is obtuse. <laughs> you can't be obtuse if you're going to read it because it's obscure. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, works of fiction. And so Ulysses is famous for being one of the most difficult books to understand. And he said he wanted to keep the professors guessing for years to come. And then you get to Finnegan's Wake, and it is pretty much impossible to read. He's known for that, but he's also known for, if not founding, at least popularizing the short story form. So you had short story writers before him, but what he added to the short story was kind of the tightness of its form, how it would build towards one bright moment that he called the epiphany. And we'll talk more about that later. But so he was really influential in the sort of short story that Flannery O'Connor would write that, um, not Martin Dressler, the guy who wrote Martin Dressler. Stephen Milhauser. Stephen Milhauser would write, that Ray Bradbury would write, um, Hemingway would write as well. And so a lot of the stuff that we know of and look for and admire in a short story, kind of it came from what he did with his work in the Dubliners. And so, yeah, he's he's extremely influential. He wore an eye patch. He was an eccentric guy. He was born in 1882, died in 1941. So he was contemporaries with a lot of the writers we've read. He would have lived at the same period as C.S. Lewis, who we're going to be reading next, Yeah, was during this period. So he was Irish, but he didn't stay Irish his whole life. In fact, as you pointed out, he would eventually become an expatriate. But just to quickly then look at his life, because you need to understand who he was as a man, and then we'll need to understand what Ireland was. I don't think we've ever had any Irish literature before, have we? I don't think so. Someone might be yelling up there. <sighs> well, Seamus... Seamus Heaney? Oh, yes. We, we were Seamus a great Heaney, Irish yeah. poet, yeah. I mean, well, we didn't talk about Irish. Him. Right. Well, we didn't talk about his position in Ireland or no, Irish no. history. Yeah, we so, really didn't uh, get into Seamus Heaney very much when we did our... That was a shame. We yeah. A shame. Uh, it's, a sh- it's a shame, Brandon. <laughs> it's a shame. Uh, yeah, anyway. All right, enough... Uh, 
enough delaying. Let's jump right into this. So his biography and this, so the readers or the, the readers building off our readers. So for our readers in London, (laughs) but our listeners everywhere else, for some reason, you guys in England are reading the book in England. (laughs) We just send transcripts of the podcast to London. (laughs) It's here. They get crazy. Like when Dickens novels would come to America, they just swarm the ships. What's going to happen? People waiting by boats. (laughs) Do they uh, remember to do donor shout outs? (laughs) Oh no. So <laughs> you should buckle in because this could be a lengthy context here. So he was the oldest of 10 surviving children. So he was the oldest son. They came from a middle-class family, but a middle-class family that quickly deteriorated into poverty, largely because of his father's alcoholism. My and understanding is that his father was, had a decent inheritance, had oh yeah. decent money, but basically just... He just blew it all. Blew it and yeah. he blew it all because of alcoholism and because of his just mismanagement of their wealth. And so he was able to see his father and you in double you look at some of these father figures here affected by their their gambling debts or their alcoholism that comes directly from James Joyce's childhood because his father was that kind of Irish man, the stereotype that everyone thinks of when they think of an Irish man as a drunkard and someone who just wastes all his money on gambling debts, you know. So <laughs> we're not saying all Irish is are all Irishmen are drunkards, but <laughs> James Joyce himself would become a drunkard later on in life. Either that was because he saw his father do it or because he was Irish. <laughs> Just, he was those are the only options. Predisposed. <laughs> those are the only two options. <laughs> James Joyce was a brilliant student. He attended some Catholic schools as a young boy. He was known for being brilliant. In fact, he was recommended by his peers and some of his teachers to go to some, I have it written down here, Sodality of Our Lady, which was a kind of a higher-end school for students with promise. And so from a young age, he had promise. Extraordinarily bright, extraordinarily well-read, which led to him being extraordinarily proud. And this marked his life. He was a very prideful man. He had some health issues, especially with his eye, which would later become a, a heavier issue when he would move to France and he would finally get an eye patch. And that would be his trademark was if you look at, in fact... I don't know. Do any of you guys have a picture on your book? I do not. Most pictures of James Joyce are pictures of him either with those terrifying glasses he has, the little, people can't see this on the podcast, but I'm putting my fingers like little circles. Little round. And they made his eyes really big. Mm -hmm. Or he would have that eye patch. And it was because his eyesight was just terrible. So he was plagued by his father's- go into uh, Barnes and Noble. Yes. They have like the the cafeteria. Where they have like Starbucks or whatever. They have the panel with all the great authors. He'll be up there because it's really iconic. Mm -hmm. You'll see the dude with the eye patch. You'll see Hemingway with his beard and Virginia Woolf moping in a corner somewhere. And then, yeah, Joyce will be there with his eye patch. Yep. Yep. And so he was one of these figures, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but he was, he definitely became one of these figures who performed their identity as an author. Sure. He wanted people to know that he was James Joyce. That whole 20th century kind of modernist crowd invented that yeah performing hemingway definitely yeah i'm hemingway i must be larger than life and challenge everyone to boxing matches and go in my little boat to cuba and try and fight the whatever yep that's right and so he was definitely a part of that movement in fact we can just get to that right now he went to he eventually did make it into the university of dublin where he studied literature came kind of involved with the avant-garde movement, or at least the political movements that were more liberal and extreme. And so he couldn't get some of his literary reviews published. And in fact, there was only like, I'm trying to see what the guy's name was. Arthur Griffith printed one of his radical 
reviews on an Ibsen play in his magazine called The United Irishman. So he was already taking his position as someone who wasn't going to be a part of the traditional conservative Irish national identity. And I actually planned on keeping this for its own section, but I think it probably would help to just back up real fast before we get into who he, his later career as a writer and just talk about Ireland and where Ireland was at the moment. Sure. Because it's directly related to Dubliners and the context of understanding where probably more than half of these stories comes from. So we need to talk about the history of Ireland. And so if we go back to the history of Ireland is always one of its relation to England and the shadow that England casts over Ireland and the trauma that causes for the Irish people, especially in their continual struggles to try and free themselves from English rule. So this goes all the way back to even Shakespeare's period with Oliver Cromwell and his kind of brutal tactics to conquer the Irish. How this ended up looking is the Irish aristocracy would be usually would favor the English and English rule because they would be the ones that were the reason they had the rule in the first place. And then you would have the lower working class who would be the ones who were continually fighting. And occasionally you would have the aristocrats who would come out and they would, you would have some aristocratic leader who would come and he would cause an uprising. Or you would have some tenant farmer who would come and he would cause an uprising for a few months, sometimes a few years. It would look like the Irish were going to win their na- their nation, and then the British would send their armies and crush them. Rule and law would get harsher on them. The, this was the way. This was Ireland's relationship to England. They wanted to. You had some that wanted to be free, and then you had some that didn't want to be free. And this was just escalated even more after the Protestant Reformation, where you had the ones who were for. British rule were usually Protestant, and the ones who were anti-British rule were usually Catholic. This just continued to develop through the 1700s right into the 1800s when it began to escalate into these nationalist movements and things that would become like the IRA today, where there's a lot of fighting, a lot of terrorist actions, a lot of bloodshed on one end. Then you had, of course, the ones more in the middle who wanted to go through policy to convince England to free them. And then you had the others, the Unionists, who were in favor of British rule. And so this just marked Irish politics right up until the 1900s. And one of the figures that we see mentioned in this book multiple times is this guy named Parnell. Mm -hmm. And Parnell, he was was a Protestant, but he uh, became sympathetic to the Irish nationalist cause and became an influential leader until the late 1800s when he was ousted by some of the Catholics through a divorce scandal. But he became this mythic legendary hero for the people of Ireland, this guy who kind of represented what they wanted, this Irish politics, this uh, the Irish state freed from England. And so this pushes us right into the early 1900s when Joyce would have been writing his books, when you had the nationalist movements, the guys who wanted Irish rule to be free from British rule. And then you had the unionists, who were the conservatives, who wanted English rule to stay, just really escalating into more and more violent clashes until finally you would get, in 1916, two years after Dubliners was written and published, the Easter Uprising. Nationalists took over one of the post offices and declared Irish independence, and then the British sent in some of their men. The Unionists came as well. There was a lot of bloodshed. 500 people died. And then after the uprising was stamped out. You had 15 of their guys were executed and 3,000 more were imprisoned. And this just ignited the Irish anger at Britain. Would eventually in 1920, in the early 1920s, lead to what we now have, which is Northern Ireland and Ireland. So Northern Ireland is still part of Great Britain. The point being that 
the Irish have a long history of infighting within their state, of people of one group hating the other group, this this bloodshed and turmoil that comes from feeling from being a colonized people. And so this is directly in Dubliners with multiple of these stories. You see it in the one that you guys both, well, that probably arguably the worst story in the book, <laughs> Ivy Day in the committee room. Are they talking I, about Parnell? Yeah, Ivy Day lot. is the day where they commemorate Parnell. Mm-hmm. But you see it in the dead. You see it all throughout here because the conflict with Ireland would def- would be a conflict between, like you would see with uh, Tolstoy with the Russians, it's this conflict between the fact that you've been seen as a barbaric people by the English, a people that need to be ruled versus, well, but you also have your own culture that you want to see grow and flower, right? And so um, there's always that conflict and, and you see it with Joyce to an extent, you see it especially with a guy like William Butler Yeats. And so hand in hand with the Irish politics, you also had the Irish revival, which happened in the late 1800s. The Irish revival was this group of artists looking back at Irish tradition and saying, we need to take some of these Gaelic things, give them life in our art. And so William Butler Yeats is the most famous example of this. And so a lot of his early work that he would write would be uh, retellings of Irish myths, would be the fairies. He wrote a lot of fairy songs, all these things that were Celtic in origin. And then obviously he would be the, he, he was the figurehead of the Irish revival because in the early 1920s, he won the Nobel Prize. And so even back then, the Nobel Prize was kind of political because as you saw, and as we, as I just said, in the early 1920s, you had Irish freedom finally. And so then they give it to William Butler Yeats, the great figurehead of that movement. So, I mean, things don't change that much. Mm-hmm. But even in the Irish theater, like, so Abbey Theater was a, a, an important place, kind of similar to the Globe where a lot of the Irish playwrights would come out and they would produce their plays. So you had J.M. Singh and you had um, Sean O'Casey, and they would write these plays that were meant to lionize Ireland in the Irish tradition and just show the Unionists, the guys who were pro-England, that it was time to give Ireland her day in the sun. And so you would have a lot of riots, a lot of uprisings. So art itself was very political. So where does Joyce fit into all this? Well, Joyce was Catholic by upbringing. He went to the University of Dublin, and then he decides... Instead of joining either the conservatives or the unionists, he decides to flee. He meets a girl named Nora Barnacle. She was a chambermaid from Galway City. And on their first date together, June 16th, 1904, would become fundamental. Iconic. Iconic. That's the word I'm looking for. Iconic for people who love Joyce. It's called Bloomsday. That was his first date with this girl where they went out into the city together. And it was this bright moment in his life. And so later in when he would write Ulysses, Ulysses is uh, based on one day. That day is the day that Ulysses is based on. And with Nora, he would flee from Ireland and would move to Europe where he would teach English literature. He would teach people how to speak English. For a while, he was a bank teller, I think, in the city of Zurich. He got fatigued with that life for a while. And all in the meantime, he was writing these short stories that would become Dubliners. But he couldn't get any real success in Dublin. So he would try to publish these stories. No one was really listening to him. He felt like people should listen to him. And he came back one more time and tried to get his the Dubliners published. And this guy, a guy with the last name Roberts, rejected in 1912 the Dubliners. And so James Joyce finally decided, after writing this passive-aggressive poem about Roberts, to be done with Dublin forever, as you said. And he just fled, and he never came back. And he never came closer to Dublin than London. He just... he. 
viewed himself as a outcast, as an expatriate, and he just would never come back. But I think it's, it's true that he still followed closely. He read all the newspapers. He heard all the family reports. He was very interested in oh, yeah. he, he felt a certain kinship with it that never really went away. But well, yeah, that's a good segue into the next the point I was going to make is that even though he left Dublin, all he ever wrote about was Dublin. And so like Dickens with London, like Tolstoy with the Russian classes that he was uh, known for, great artists don't try to create what they don't know. They work with what they do know. And so he wrote Dublin the rest of his life. So Ulysses was set in Dublin, the Dubliners, obviously, spoiler alert, the Dubliners <laughs> is set in Dublin. And Finnegan's Wake is set in Dublin. So he wrote what he knew. So after his rejection with Dubliners, you guys have anything you want to add? I well, I was going to, I don't know whether you were going to maybe come back to this, but we're going to talk any more about his personal life and character or... yeah. But we can get into that now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I was I was only going to add, um, I think it's just important to understand who James Joyce actually was as a guy. He often in the, I think for most of his life, lived a lot like his father did in that he was fleeing creditors in the middle of the night. He yeah. was moving from place to place. He was leaving wrecked apartments. He never did. I think he finally did marry Nora late in life in order for some pragmatic reason, you know, for a, I don't, I don't want to say tax credits, but they had to get married because of where they were living. But they never they had teenage children by the time that they actually got married. He was a very sexually debauched man. You can find lots of accounts. You can find lots of his own accounts of that sort of thing. If, 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 if uh, you're the sort of person that uh, likes to view the corpse in Jake's Augustine uh, analogy what episode was that from the second Milhauser episode if you want to know all the gnarly details about Joyce's life we won't go into them here because Augustine wouldn't want us to but Joyce was depraved depraved yeah if you want to f see some of the depravity you can it's all over the internet it's all over the internet the, it, Joyce was very famously enamored with a sexual experience that he had with Nora on their first date in public. And it's just gross. It's yeah. just gross. He was a, kind of a gross guy. He was a gross guy and he was full of himself. So this actually works as a perfect segue into the last part of his life, which is when he becomes the avant-garde modernist writer. And he becomes the avant-garde modernist writer because he was full of his own self and he was just depraved and debauched. And so there's a lot of nastiness in Ulysses, even though it's really hard to pick up on because the book is almost nonsense. And it's really, and there's apparently a lot of debauchery in Finnegan's Wake too. But again, it's even more nonsense than Ulysses. And so it's hard to pick up on this stuff. But it's all, yeah, he was censored in Dublin because as I said, Dublin was heavily Catholic at the time. Censorship laws made it where even uh, some of his stories in Dubliners were censored, and these are fairly tame. But that's kind of where he positioned himself. That when a, with the modernist avant-garde, it would really get bad with postmodernism. When it would get really seriously debauched with like Walter or whatever his name is, Burroughs, William S. Burroughs. Mm -hmm. But that's where Joyce would always position himself was with these people that were like pushing the boundaries and trying to write things that would scandalize or hopefully stir up some sort of political trouble through moral debauchery. Um, Virginia Woolf, those people, they were right along there with him. So yeah, so you see it in his art. And he is largely responsible for where we are with censorship laws in the United States 
now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Like Finnegan's Wake, I think it was, went through the whole Supreme Court process. Oh, Basically, was Ulysses. Was it Ulysses? Yeah. yeah. If you sort of like everyone just assume that an artist in America can do whatever they want without the government censoring them at all, which I think is just basically what we all take for granted these days. Joyce is one of the primary people that gave us that, Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. And it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure where I would land on that. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to say, well, it would be nice if the government could tell Game of Thrones not to be so smutty. But then you think, well, do you want the government to have to sign off on Nathan Alberson's podcasts? Well, uh, maybe not. So it's an interesting big question that we probably won't discuss today about censorship and all that sort of thing. But the fact we all take for granted the idea that an artist in exploring whatever his vision is can go wherever he wants sexually and otherwise. Joyce is largely the one that, along with a couple other guys, won that right for us in America. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the modernist writers, so Hemingway would have been in the same group. You know, you have the whole, the scenes and for whom the bell tolls. Sure. That. So these guys, they were actively trying to push these boundaries and irritate the crusty establishment. Old establishment. Yeah. The establishment. That's who yeah. they hated. Ugh, the establishment. So then just kind of quickly wrap up his life. In 1914 is when he published Dubliners. But as I said, these were just, these were a collection of stories he had written and published in various journals throughout his early career. And then, he would live in France for a while. He was a part of that expatriate group. We talked about it with Hemingway, these guys who fled to France, and then they all formed this group together. If you've ever seen the Woody Allen film, Midnight, Midnight in Paris, mm-hmm. all those guys make an appearance. That's because they were all there together. And so modernism, that's kind of where modernism started, was in France at that time. So you, see you had all the guys, T.S. Eliot. And then in 1922, that's the big date, because that's when you have The Wasteland, you have Mrs. Dalloway, and you have Ulysses, are all published in 1922. And that's the big literary modernist year. And it, modernism exploded, and it became this drawing room, museum, high elite thing that people get, got really excited about. And we've talked a whole lot about modernism before. Where does Joyce fit into modernism? Where does Joyce fit Where into modernism? Where does Joyce fit into modernism? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> he fits, he's one of the figureheads. He's one of the f- people who pushed it. And made modernism what it is. So just to quickly recap what modernism is, we've talked, like I said, we've talked a whole lot about it on the bookening. It was this movement in art that was tired of the old conservative enlightenment traditions. It didn't believe, especially after World War I, that we could know truth, that we could know reality, that we could understand anything, that we were all just sort of floating and trying to piece our lives back together after the bloodshed of World War I. There was a lot of cynicism and coldness and just trying to have art be the one vehicle where we could deal with reality. Joyce kind of fits into there, and he kind of doesn't. Ulysses is especially the iconic. So Dubliners is interesting because it's not necessarily really modernist yet. It's more, it kind of has these elements of realism and stuff that you would see coming out of the late 1800s. Maybe Ulysses that would be the real modernist piece of art. And why that is the case is because with Ulysses, he spearheaded what he would become known for, which was the stream of consciousness style, which is where he just tried to get inside his character's heads and he would tell you exactly what they were thinking as they were going through the day. You don't see any of that element in Dubliners. In Dubliners, you see more of the old art style of like Chekhov and Flaubert, these guys who were trying to write more realist stories. We're not looking at Ulysses, we're looking at Dubliners. And so we're kind of right at the point, like in 1914, where modernism was kind of about to start. But this is James Joyce's 
one of his few works. Like I said, he didn't have many things that he wrote, but it's really not modernist. And so um, it's kind of, it's right where he is before he decides to bail on everything he could have been with Dubliners. I think there are signs that he could have been something amazing. Mm-hmm. And instead he decided to push himself into the avant-garde, wore his eye patch and completely joined the modernist ship. Now, how would, because like some of those guys that you mentioned, Hemingway in particular, would have seen himself in relation to everyone else. You know, I'm fighting against, um, I'm in the, I'm going another round with, what's in the Great Gatsby guy with Fitzgerald. Yeah. Would Joyce have seen himself as part of that group or would he have sort of held himself aloof and just said he was doing his own thing? He kind of held himself aloof and was kind of just doing his own thing. He was the Irish genius. Like he was pretty full of himself. He always thought that he should have more fame than he had and he was pretty bitter about it. That's what made him leave Ireland, leave Ireland in the first place. So he knew these other guys and he admired these other guys. But as for, he he wasn't necessarily in that tight circle like you had with Ezra Pound and Hemingway and Virginia Woolf had her group that she was a part of. So he was kind of his own thing, his own genius mm-hmm. in his eyes. That's what I thought. That's what I yeah. suspected would be the case. I just, so yeah. but with Devliners, what you do see is it is political, very political in the sense that it's making observations that some of the Catholics in Dublin, the conservatives in Dublin wouldn't appreciate and like. And so his big point... With Dubliners, that people usually look at is two things. One is the sense of paralysis, and the other is the sense of epiphany. Well, the sense of paralysis, and you see it in most of the stories, is he's trying to say that Dublin culture doesn't allow really for you to act. It, it freezes you. It makes you so self-conscious thin, so unable to make decisions on your own because of either Catholic morality or just because of modern life that you aren't able to make any decisions based on your own free will and that you're just going to freeze up at these crucial moments where your true self is trying to push through and you're just going to fall flat on your face. So the most famous example, an obvious example of paralysis is the story Evelyn, where she literally is about to run away with his sailor and then she freezes and grabs the railing and he sails away and she's left. And it's because of her Dublin family. It's because of her sudden remembering of her Catholic heritage and the and how happy she was at home, and how she'd be abandoning these things, and how her mother had told her to take care of her brothers and sisters, and all this just baggage of Dublin just grabs her, and she can't make the decision to move forward like Joyce did. So Joyce, you know, he he was able to push through and move. He was to the France. hero who escaped. Yeah, and well. everything he wrote since then was about how Dublin sucks and tries to keep you. That's right. <laughs> tries to keep you oppressed, and he was one of the only ones who got away. And uh, yeah. And by so, the way, it might be a nice place to throw in the fact that a lot of people hated him after the Dubliners came out because he threw a lot of people under the bus and you'd never know it to read it. But many of those characters are based on people that he knew. Oh, yeah. There is an Aunt Julia. There is a Gabriel. There is a this. There is a that. He just had no shame about not even disguising it. I think he even used some of the names. And so there's a whole group of people that really felt betrayed and felt like he had exposed some of their nakedness perhaps i might be reading into that a little bit no, you're but, not. but there was a whole group of people that were just like what did you do and he would do things i mean he was just a weirdo in the sense like i think he wrote to whoever the real aunt julia was and asked her what the height of the gate was to her house he needed to know whether someone could climb over the gate that might be something from i don't know i don't remember whether that's something in the dead or in the ulysses but there's a scene in one of his books where someone has to climb over a gate. He had to, without ever going back to Dublin again, he had to know how 
high the gate was and whether someone would actually be able to. He had to get all those things in his head. So when you talk about realism, he's really, it's not that he didn't, I don't want to make the case that he was just telling stories from his life. That there was no art or shaping of it because that's that's not true. That would be an exaggeration. But he was just nakedly taking things from life and sometimes being very obsessive about getting certain details right. Yeah, I know this. There's a famous example of that. This guy, he was out once and he was drunk. And this guy came and took him home. And it was, I think I have his name somewhere. His Alfred Hunter. He was known for being a Jewish man. And his wife was also had the reputation of being unfaithful to him. And so Alfred Hunter would become Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. And Leopold Bloom is the main character of Ulysses, and he's known for being a Jew. And his wife, Molly, ends up cheating on him in the last chapter of the book. And so, yeah, he would take directly from characters he knew and would very thinly veil the fact that this character was based on this person. Right. It's, it's the, kind of a nasty thing to do. It is it is nasty because it's the thinness of the... Of course, every author is taking from the hodgepodge of their life and recombining things, but the the brutal disregard for who he would hurt in the way that he did it is something that you should know about him, I think. Yeah, it yeah. reminds you of Faulkner. It reminds you of Cather without pathos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it reminds you of... I don't, I've, I've really been hitting on hard on the fact that he was kind of a stuck-up narcissist. I don't think we've used the word narcissist yet, but like in Dubliners, so you see this guy who's, he's just, you, so many young writers and artists who want to be writers and artists are the same way. They just think that they have this vision they're going to give the world. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has it. So James Joyce thinks that nobody's ever thought of leaving their Catholic Dublin heritage before to abandon Dublin. And then his entire life, just like a baby will never come back because, you know, Dublin had burned me. And then all you ever write about is Dublin. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's super mature. Yeah, yeah real mature. It's like <laughs> Freud would have so many things to say about this guy. He was like, he should have been, a, I don't know why he was never a case study for Freud. Well, he was. Um, he did go see uh, Carl Jung. Fun yeah, fact. with his with little... His, what? His daughter. Yeah, with his daughter. His daughter, his daughter, just his daughter, fun fact, ended up in an institution for most of her life. She went mad. Mm-hmm. I think that's correct. Lucia. And so she was left in an institution somewhere along the wonderful uh, journey of Joyce's life. Yeah, and Joyce, he was convinced she had schizophrenia. And she was seen by Carl Jung. And Joyce ended up despising Carl Jung, I think. And they, they kind of had a contentious relationship. Carl Jung wrote an interesting thing about Ulysses, which I'll be getting to in the body of our work. But so, In the body of our work. In the body of our podcast later on, folks. Yep. So, um, so paralysis. Mm. <laughs> and so he wrote a lot about a paralysis. And then he also had these moments in most of his short stories. I'm not sure it's in every single one, but it's the epiphany. And this goes back to his Catholic heritage, the Feast of Epiphany. Isn't there a Feast of Epiphany? There right. is. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. It's getting pretty close to this time of year. Mm-hmm. But for him, the epiphany was this moment where your true self, and a lot of critics spend a lot of time talking about these epiphanies because they're obscure and they're hard to get at. But what it seems to be, especially in some letters he wrote and some letters that his brother wrote, this moment where your true self pushes through and finally you see yourself. And this aspect that he would add to the short story, this kind of bright poetic moment where the story, it's going and it seems normal. And then suddenly you have like this loud clap of thunder Mm -hmm. where the story shows you something. Two real examples in The Dead that stand out. One, Araby, where he suddenly is running. Two examples in Dubliners. In Dubliners, yeah. yeah. The lights are turning off and he just realizes, you know, you, the reader, I don't think the character necessarily realizes, but you, the reader, see the character for what's really been going on. And then with the dead, you know, 
That's the most famous epiphany. He has the epiphany himself, Gabriel standing there watching the snow fall. So it's these moments that you're reading the story. It's a nice story, but then suddenly this powerful thing comes out of nowhere, and it's like this revelation. And obviously this particular aspect of the short story would become kind of fundamental to the way a a short story works. You see it all over the place. I would, if you look in, most famous example would be, for our listeners, would probably be Flannery O'Connor. Oh, yeah. But her epiphanies are different because her epiphanies are God's actual activity in the world bringing you epiphany whether or not you want it, right? (laughs) And now all the actions leading up to this have a consequence. That's right. (laughs) Everything that rose converged. (laughs) And for the difference with Joyce is the the consequence it's made by the artist or it's the character just realizing something about themselves. And so Flannery O'Connor actually does add something very interesting (laughs) to the uh, tradition and history of the short story. Mm. (laughs) Especially now. Oh, yeah. We'll get to talk more about her. She's like that. G- she's like G.K. Chesterton, and then you have a lot of young writers really wish that they were Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, she was Flannery O'Connor, right? And <laughs> you can't be Flannery O'Connor. Sorry, without seeming like a hack. Mm. But yeah, that's James Joyce. I don't have much more to say about him. Uh, it's the airplane. Oh, I, well, I just want to say... No, I don't want to say that. Never mind. Hey, oh, it's it's the airplane going over Whoa. direct from Ireland, bringing the a bag... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to tie it into Irish stuff, people. We're all going to tell you what kind of baggage we brought to the wonderful epiphany of reading this book. Or were we just paralyzed by its, its wonders? I don't know. Uh, Jake, what kind of baggage did you bring to Dubliners? Well, I read Portrait of a, of the Artist as a Young Man when I was in high school, I think. Don't really remember it that well. Don't remember Tried that Tried to read Ulysses at one point and quit. So didn't have a lot of expectation about Joyce himself, but I, was, I love short stories. This sort of being like a key pivotal contribution to the short story was something I was just really looking forward to getting in and enjoying some short stories and enjoying <laughs> some of the greatest short stories ever. And That may, uh, that may be my fault. <laughs> yeah, you did play a role there in my uh, expectations and uh, not what I expected. <laughs> not what quite what I was looking for. I just, we'll talk more about it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. there were some things that I really loved. We'll, get, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Uh, my baggage, I didn't have a lot of baggage with Joyce. I think I did try him. As I've talked about before, I was the kind of kid that liked to read literature and liked, wanted to be well-read and was very proud and wanted to sort of teach myself and didn't feel like high school was, with all its Fahrenheit 451s and things like this, was really giving me much to go on. So I sought my own breath and I read a lot of things ridiculously too young. You know, I think I probably was trying to read Dostoevsky when I was 14 and say what you will about Dostoevsky. You probably could stand to have a few more years under your belt before you tackle that dude. Joyce was one of those and he was one that I couldn't conquer. He was one that I tried and he was just too difficult and I couldn't find an entry point. And usually I was pretty good because I really didn't really care about reading a lot of this stuff, but I did care greatly about being able to say that I had read it to be able to check it off my list of the canon. So Joyce was very much someone that I just wanted to be able to say I've done it. And I want to say that I read The Dead in high school, but when I read The Dead again, I found that I didn't remember anything about it besides the beautiful last sentence. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I just read the last, maybe the last sentence was analyzed in high school and I just, I don't know. I don't know. 
my history with Joyce was that I'd banged my head I'd, at some point when I was 15, 16, 17, gotten Ulysses or Portrait of an Old Man or something from the library. and <laughs> Portrait know. of an Old Man, huh? Po- po- portrait of an Old Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and tried to get into it, but never had much luck and didn't know what to expect. Knew that Brandon said this was the greatest, his favorite, His he was so excited. And, and it is. I stand by that. <laughs> So I came into it without a ton of expectations besides knowing that Joyce was supposed to be difficult and kind of having the idea that he was one of those narcissistic, modernist, artisty kind of guy that probably didn't care too much about how comfortable I was as a reader. If, if you know me, if you know us on the booking, that's not something I tend to have a lot of patience for. And we'll find out whether I had patience for it. But Which, yeah. as far as style goes, the Dubliners is not that experimental no it's it's pretty accessible it's yeah. pretty accessible i do think I, I forgot to make that point he was a well let you finish your baggage well yeah i can, I I can mean, make that point with my baggage yeah I, well I, I did find that the book was accessible and it wasn't difficult to read in the sense of making sense of what was going on and entering into it whether it was worth entering into is another question and one that we'll answer here Shortly. It's my baggage. Brandon, what baggage did you bring to the book? Well, I've got a lot of baggage with Irish literature. <laughs> got a lot of baggage. Yeah. So, all right, most people know that, you know, I really loved Dickens around the age of 12, found David Copperfield, loved it, and then started to move on to other authors that I thought I would love too. Very similar to you, as I got older, I also thought of myself as someone who knew about literature and wanted to really expand Mm-hmm. and get into hard stuff, things that nobody else would be reading. Sure. And so that's when I first tried to read Ulysses, got through like the first few pages and just could not finish it. And that has been my relationship to Joyce since then. I've never once finished Ulysses, and I actually wear that as a badge of pride. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the first few sentences of Finnegan's Wake and decided it wasn't worth my time. But I read The Dead, and I read Araby, and I've read very few of the other short stories in this volume of until this go round until this go round yeah i never had reason to read any of the others i had read an encounter which actually stand out, stands out as one of the <laughs> stories you remember at least as the one about the dirty old yeah, man i'd read the sisters just here and there i had read some of the stories so i had read two gallants before and i had read clay just flipping through here and i had read obviously the dead i read the dead when i was in high school one of my teachers had me read it thought it was brilliant and loved it and that's kind of was my relationship to joyce is i remembered the dead no actually i did not read the dead because a teacher made me read it i read the dead because and i remember the moment now it just like came back to me like an the epiphany snow falling faintly right yeah, now, like folks. an epiphany this is how i found the dead i was courting my now wife anna and i was at her house and her mom had lots of books and her mom really loves literature as well and it was something that we bonded over and there was this volume of the great short novels of the masters and the dead was in there so i read the dead and the metamorphosis at the same time so nice fun combo. and the dead just blew me away and i was like well why is ulysses not the same as this and so then i tried to go back to ulysses and again just made it and it was just awful and i I, but i thought there was something wrong with me now that i'm old and younger at the same time (laughs) as our nobel laureate tells us (laughs) I realized there was nothing wrong with me. There was something majorly wrong with Joyce. Joyce went down the wrong path. Mm. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and he he took neither road. He tried to forge his own path right right down the middle. and got uh, stuck in the briars and (laughs) thinks he's... And said he discovered America. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) He's kind of like Kurtz. (laughs) Uh, That's a good analogy, actually. But I really wanted Joyce to be great because I loved Irish literature. I, around the same time, 
I was really discovering poetry through Yeats. Brandon, and, huge Yeats fan, if yeah. you haven't heard any him talk and about that before. And I stand by Yeats. Yeats is an amazing poet. Not all his poetry is great, but a poet, we can forgive poets their bad poems if they have their really great poems. Not because he has such a volume of poetry. Mm-hmm. And some of his really great poems are really great. I think we're all fans here of Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Yeah, we all like just slouch from Bethlehem. Yeah, Bethlehem. We, all, we all like that one. And there was something about Yeats that I was hoping Joyce would have, but Joyce just never did have it. With his short stories, I could see movements that way, especially with RV and with Encounter to an extent. Encounter made me feel uncomfortable. Sure. Because you know something's going on there, but he never tells you, you never see what it is. And then The Dead also. I think a lot of it has to do with, I didn't talk about this as, as a form, short story. It's like halfway between the novel and the poem. I think we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Like po- Writers always really want to be a poet. And you see that with Joyce. He actually, his career followed this path. He tried to write chamber music. People just hated it. And so then he wrote these short stories. And then finally he ended with a novel. But people want to be poets. Then the short story gets as close as fiction can to poetry without being poetry. Because it deals with this one little bright experience in your life. Mm-hmm. And so the ending of the dead works really well, I would argue, because it kind of is poetry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the novel is its own thing, and it's fantastic. But mm, unless you just decide to give up, wash your hands of life, and, and then just yeah, put on your like I don't know what he did, but he went crazy. So that's my baggage with Joyce is I always wanted him to be better than he was, and I really, really, and I think this is this episode. <laughs> will be me coming to terms with the fact that he's not as good as people want him to be. Mm. Well, folks, when Brandon says this episode, what he actually means is next episode, because we're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. We've already gone for pretty long, lots of, lots of wonderful context to cover. So we've got our baggage out of the way. Now, what do we think about Joyce? Maybe you can already guess, but what I think you should do, take a week, read The Dead if you haven't read it. It's a good story. Should you read the others? Maybe wait and hear our thoughts next week. You should read Araby. Ar- yeah, you read Araby. So get yourself a bowl of Lucky Charms. Put on, Get your rabbit's foot. Dress in green. Drink Lucky your Charms s- with Jameson. <laughs> drink some Jameson. <laughs> no, in the Lucky Charms. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah put instead some, of milk. <laughs> <laughs> put, put Jameson instead of milk in your Lucky Charm. Wear your little green hat. Rub your rabbit's foot. Guinness might make it. It's kind of creamy. Yeah, Guinness is creamy. <laughs> you don't know milk. <laughs> Nathan Alverson is produced by Warhorn Media. Jacob Mentzel was here. Brandon uh, Chastine was here. And Nathan Alverson was here. And you can still sign up to be a patron at patreon.patreon.com forward slash the booking. You can make a tax deductible donation to Warhorn Media at warhornmedia.com. You can look up all our stuff on the social medias. The booking has a social media. The Warhorn Media has a social media. You can listen to all our other fine products. Listen to Monumental. That's still dropping right now. A big show about the small things that, nope, a small show strike reverse small show about the big things that god does in the lives of ordinary people wonderful program you can listen to wherever fine podcasts are available see you next week for more on mr joyce bye bye (laughs) bye